So if you want to turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 8, I know you guys are looking at, um, at the, uh, the notes and now at the, uh, um, hit that little present button. You're looking at the notes and you're probably going to be looking at the, the PowerPoint slide here in just a bit and you're going, you're looking at how I've titled this Saratini and you're probably thinking to yourself, what in the world are you talking about? Well, um, Nelson, just hit this present over here. Present, go left, go left, left, down, there. And you're probably thinking to yourself, what in the world is he talking about? Well, if you will, let me read the text to you. And when I'm done reading the text, it'll make perfect sense, I promise. You ready? Here we go. Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 8. And Saul approved of his execution, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him, but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds, with one accord, paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of the many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in the city. That makes perfect sense, right? Saratini, you're all like thinking, yeah, that makes I got it. I know some of you are kind of confused because you're going, Saratini, I pronounce it Saratini. <laughs> or Saratini, actually it's Saratini. I know some of you hillbillies probably say Saratini, but... But the sophisticated folks say Saratini. So now we're clear? All right, we're going to go on with, with the sermon. Let me explain a little bit about what Saratini is. I didn't know until about a week ago, Arvid, this... When we had breakfast a while back, you said I hadn't given you a word for a long time, a, a word for you. So here it is. But Saratini, as I'm reading the text, I'm thinking, you know, it reminds me of those plants that only scatter their seed when fire comes. And so I Googled that. And it gave me that definition, or it gave me the word for what you're talking about is the word Saratini. So you see, we all learned something. And Saratini is a function of some seed plants where seeds are released in response to an environmental trigger. Now that environmental trigger could be, there are multiple things. It could be water, it could be heat, but fire is the one that is studied the most. So you've all heard of certain plants that only release their seed, only send out their seed, which is going to uh, cause the plant to prosper, to grow, cause the species to, uh, to promulgate. They only release their seed under the intense action of a fire. And as I'm reading this text, I'm thinking to myself, Saratini, the fires of persecution come, and instead of destroying the organism, the church, it actually causes the church to, to flower and, and, and plant new seeds and grow and, and reproduce itself. And so the fires of persecution bring about not the death of the organi organism, but rather the prospering and the growth of the organism. 
And so that's kind of going to underline our text today. I want to remind you of where we have been. Where we have been is we've been studying the person of Stephen, and I think he's a rather uh, interesting individual. But you'll recall that Stephen had been going from synagogue to synagogue, and he'd been sharing the gospel. He'd been preaching Christ. And, and I argued, and I think I argued well, that what he was, uh, what he was arguing was that Christ had fulfilled um, the purposes of the temple, that all the Old Testament um, purposes of the law um, are fulfilled fulfilled in Christ, and the people came against him, and they said, no, you are coming against the temple, and you're coming against Moses. And then last week, or a couple weeks ago, we saw that Stephen then gave, made a defense, or probably more, more precisely, he bore testimony of Christ. Because you'll notice Stephen was not defending himself. Read that account of Stephen's, quote, defense. He does not defend himself. He doesn't say, oh, you just misunderstood me, or, you know, I'm really innocent. He bore testimony of Jesus Christ. That's what he did. He's in this council, he's in this um, courtroom, and he bears not a defense of himself, but he bears testimony of Jesus Christ. And then last week, we saw how being so enraged that... Stephen was, uh, the, the people that he bore testimony to were so enraged that they put him to death. And one of the things I argued or suggested is that the death of Stephen, we see two things occur with the death of Stephen. The first thing we see is that Stephen's death actually bore witness of the person of Jesus Christ. In other words, I, I almost think that his death was the conclusion of his speech. Instead of saying, and in summary... This is what I have to say. His death was that final testimony. That testimony that bore witness of Christ. And you can go back and and read those notes. But we see that Stephen's trial and death, that he he bore witness to Jesus Christ, that his life and his death mirrored Christ. The second thing that the death of Stephen did that we suggested last week is that the death of Stephen was the catalyst for the outward spread of the gospel. That it basically was the reason why the people left the city of Jerusalem, why Christians left the city of Jerusalem and took the gospel to Judea and Samaria and to the other parts of the world. So I suggested those two things. Today we're going to look at the second one, that Stephen's death was the catalyst for the outward spread of the gospel. So that's just a bit of where we've been. Let me give you a little bit of a preview of where I hope to go today. What I want to do is I want to consider how the spread of the gospel from Jerusalem to Samaria. Um, because this is in fulfillment of Jesus' words in chapter 1, verse 8. Remember, the disciples, they wanted to know, is it at this time that you're going to fulfill your, um, you're going to establish the kingdom? And he said, it's not for you to know times or seasons, but you will be my witnesses. Where? In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. Well, they've only been standing around hanging out in Jerusalem. Now the gospel, in fulfillment to what Jesus had um, taught them, they are now going into Samaria and Judea. And then a little bit later on in the book of Acts, we'll see them going into the uttermost parts of the earth. But it is the fires of persecution that spread the gospel into Samaria and Judea. One of the things I hope that you'll take away today is an understanding that that scattering, 
that God had scattered the people into other regions. But I want you to understand, I believe that that scattering continues today. Saratini continues. God continues to scatter his people for the purpose of proclaiming the gospel. And then finally, by way of preview, what I hope you'll notice, I, I, I want you to see how this, how this text flows, because it's going to have to do with how I present the text today. You'll see that it begins with persecution. It begins with the fires of persecution. It moves on to this idea, and I'm just going to use this term gospeling. I, I kind of made that word up. Um, but some of you are probably thinking that you made up Saratini, too. But I didn't really make up gospeling because I'll, I'll argue that that's probably an ultra-rigid interpretation or translation of, uh, of a Greek word, but gospeling. And then finally, um, it ends with joy. So it begins with persecution, and our text concludes with joy. And I want you to understand that joy, then, is the fruit of the scattered church as a result of persecution. And also, persecution actually serves the mission of the church. Persecution serves the mission of the church. So let's go ahead and take a look at where we're at here um, under this idea of persecution. We see that Saul approved of the execution of of Stephen, and there arose that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions, and then we look down at verse 3, but Saul was ravaging the church, And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So our text begins with persecution, with Saul um, persecuting the church of God. And before I continue on that, I do want to make a quick mention of Luke's burial. Because I think that, that, I'm sorry, Stephen's burial, not Luke. Luke wrote the account. I know that. Um. So between these two accounts of persecution in verse 2 and verse 4, there is this vindication of Stephen. And I think this is a vindication because it says devout men made lamentation over him. You should note that if somebody was stoned as a heretic, you are allowed to bury him, but you are not allowed to mourn. You are not allowed to lament his death. Yes, you could give him a proper burial, but to mourn his death was not allowed. And so you have devout men lamenting and grieving over the death of Stephen. So two, at least two things come to mind. Number one, um, it is okay to grieve when a person dies. I know we have this idea, well, we're Christians, they're all in heaven, and we should just celebrate. No, death is an enemy, and it is a cause of grief. No doubt about it. But we don't grieve as those who have no hope. But they, they grieved over the death of Stephen. But it also lets us know that these were men who were in a defiant act, defiantly stating this man was not a heretic. He was not guilty. He did no wrong. This man was innocent. And they are simply backing up what Stephen saw when Jesus stood and rose Um, when he saw the glory of God and he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. And we talked about that last week, how Jesus stood. And I think there were two reasons why Jesus stood. Um, Number one, Jesus stood as a witness, bearing witness to the innocence of um, Stephen. And the second reason was Jesus stood as a welcoming host. In other words, he's welcoming Stephen in. And these men simply affirmed that fact that Stephen 
though the world considered him guilty, and, and many in Jerusalem might have considered him guilty of heresy, he actually was vindicated not only by Christ, but the church in defiance of that, of that capital offense. They were saying, no, he committed no crime whatsoever. He was an innocent man. And so Stephen was a man filled with the Holy Spirit. Stephen was a man who was upright. He was killed for his shameless testimony of Jesus Christ. He was a man that we would perhaps Martin Luther might have been speaking of when he wrote those wonderful words, let all goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. Stephen was a man who let all goods and kindred go for the cause of Christ. He was even willing to give up this life for the sake of the gospel. He understood, you can kill my body, but you will not stop the truth of the gospel. You can shut my mouth and you can snuff out my life, but the truth remains. And so we now come to the end of our understanding or of our quick biography of the person of Stephen. And we are now introduced to this individual by the name of Saul. We saw Saul last, uh, last week. Uh, people laid their cloaks at the feet of a young man by the name of Saul. They killed Stephen. And Saul gives hearty approval to this execution. And then we see Saul's amplification of his hatred of Christians. And that he goes about and he rose on that day. What day? The day that Stephen was executed. There arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And all were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So Saul now is coming against the church. This is a severe persecution. We get that through this term ravage. He ravaged the church. This was a severe persecution. It was ongoing. We see that actually in kind of the, the construct of the sentence. It was an ongoing persecution and it was indiscriminate. Men and women, we don't, Paul, Saul didn't care. Male, female, if you're worshiping Jesus, I'm coming to get you. I will drag you out of your house and I will put you in prison and I will make sure you are executed. This is Saul. I want you to understand this is an image that sticks with Saul the rest of his life because as you know, um, well, maybe you don't, but so I'll give away the story. Um, Saul becomes Paul and he becomes probably the greatest missionary who has ever lived for the cause of Christ. But even late in his life, right into Timothy, he's going, I persecuted the church of Christ. I persecuted the body of Christ. He understood the grace that was necessary to forgive a guy like him. He understood, I, I am not held accountable for the crimes that I committed, but here's what I did. I ravaged the church. And I didn't care if you were young or old, male or female, made no difference to me. If you call on the name of Jesus Christ, I, my goal was to snuff out your life and to silence you. And this is where Saul is at. His persecution is such that Saul's persecution is such that when he becomes a Christian, Luke says there's peace in the church. One guy, one guy's hatred 
and violence towards a group of people was such that when he stops his actions, Luke can say there's peace in the church. Look at Acts chapter 9, 31. This is after um, Saul is converted. And it says, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. When Saul is converted, the church has peace. This, I think, is a testimony to how severe the persecution that Saul inflicted was that when he stopped it, you could say the church had peace. As long as Saul was doing what Saul did, the church was not at peace. Saul then, here's the ironic thing, Saul is the fire that releases the seed of the gospel. Saul is God's servant. You might even say this, and I put a question mark after this statement, God is using Saul to spread the gospel prior to his conversion. Paul becomes the greatest missionary of the gospel ever. And we think that his gospel ministry began on the road to Damascus. Perhaps his gospel ministry occurred even while he was a hater of Jesus Christ. He's spreading the gospel. He thinks he's doing a good thing. He thinks he's snuffing out the gospel. All he is doing is he is the fire that is releasing the seeds of the gospel that are now taking root and growing and prospering and the organism is growing and multiplying. I just want you to know that even violence such as this in the hands of Almighty God what are you going to do? I just think to myself, this isn't in my notes, I'm, I'm riffing now. I'm just thinking, you know what? People serve God whether they want to or not. Pharaoh served God. Saul is serving God. The bottom line, folks, if you're not serving God willingly, you're serving God's purposes unwillingly, you might as well bow the knee and give Call upon his name and be saved because the bottom line is is you cannot not serve God. So the first thing we see here is persecution. But the next thing we see then is the good news going out. But Saul was ravaging the church. And then it says, And now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. I want to stop there. Those who were being scattered went about preaching the word. The word, the fires of persecution scatter the seed of the gospel. This word scatter is the word diaspora. You're probably familiar with that. It just means a scattering, not a scattering to destroy, but a scattering to plant, like you might sow seed. God is sowing seed. And from the scattering will come a crop, and from the crop will come a harvest. And so the fires of persecution disperse the seed of the gospel outside of Jerusalem, just like Jesus said it needed to do, and it's going into Samaria, and Judea. But I want to focus on this word preaching because it's a very interesting word to me. Nelson, we need to back up a while. um, Back to gospeling. Because it is... Keep going back. Keep going back. Keep going back. There we go. Keep going back. Click one more. There we go. This idea of preaching the gospel... It comes from the Greek word euangelion, all right? So you, some of you all know what that word is. That's the word we get gospel. 
All right? Euangelion just means gospel, and gospel just means good news, but um, it's in a verb form. Well, it's a participle. So I put an I-N-G. They are gospeling the word. So see, I didn't make the word up. Go forward. There. Stay there for now. For now. They are gospeling. They, they, they were scattered, and now they're going out, and they are gospeling. They are gospeling the word. That's important because they are talking. What is it then, as they are scattered, what is it that the scattered people do? The scattered people preach the word. They are gospeling the gospel. They are gospeling the word. In fact, one commentator put it this way. They are gossiping the gospel. In other words, they get scattered, and what do they do? They don't go into a new area. And, I mean, really, they've probably left home and family and jobs and land and uh, riches and possessions. They've left that all behind. They are now refugees. And they come into a new area, and somebody says, oh, what brings you here? Well, you know, the Saul guy, he's just a terrible man. He goes around, he's killing people, and we had to flee. No, what brings you here? And they begin to talk about the person of Jesus Christ. They begin gossiping about Jesus. Let me tell you what brings me here. What brings me here is the fact that there was a man in Jerusalem, and he lived a good life and a holy life, and people called him the Messiah, and he died, and he died for our sins on a cross, and then he said he was going to rise again on the third day, and he did, and people have seen this risen Christ, and he ascended into heaven, and our sins are forgiven, and we've been talking about this, and there's this cruel guy, Saul, and he's trying to kill us all, but we're talking about Jesus. That's what they did. They went about gossiping the gospel. They began, I guess, a, a, a nice, simple way of putting it. They went about talking about Jesus. They got scattered, and what did they do? They talked about Jesus. And we might ask ourselves, or at least I ask myself the, myself the question, well, how did they know what to talk about? How did they know about Jesus? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because we know from Acts chapter 2, verse 42, that they devoted, the, the believers in Jerusalem did what? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. I want you to think about that. Believers in the early church, in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, they did four things. But the first thing that they did, and the thing that I'm going to emphasize, is that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They were committed to biblical instruction. We need to know about Jesus. So they committed themselves and they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. And now they are equipped to accurately convey the truth about Jesus. They have now been scattered. And they are not like, well, gee, I wish I knew something about that Jesus character that we all went to church and heard about, but I don't know anything about. No, we know all about Jesus because we have devoted ourselves to the gospel teaching. And now the fires of persecution have spread us. And now we're just talking about Jesus. And we know what we're talking about. We can talk about Christ intelligently. We can talk about Christ um, with confidence because we know who Christ is. We've been filled with His Holy Spirit and we have understood who Christ is because we have committed ourselves to learning about Jesus. Let me draw some applications from this second point about being scattered or gospeling. Serotonin. God continues to scatter. I, I believe God continues to scatter his people. As I said in the very beginning, this idea of serotini is that it can be any environment. All sorts of different environmental triggers can scatter seed. 
fire happens to be the most researched and the most studied. But God's, but seeds get scattered by various plants in lots of different ways. Sometimes heat will cause them, sometimes water, sometimes cold. All sorts of environmental triggers are used to scatter the seed. God continues to use the fires of persecution to scatter the seed, but that's not his only means of scattering the seed. He uses all sorts of environmental triggers to scatter the gospel across the world. And I'm going to suggest that today God is still scattering his people through all sorts of different means. I want to remind you that how the early church spread, that's one of the questions that church historians often ask. They they look at the phenomena of church growth and how is it that the early church grew so substantially in such a short period of time, especially in a hostile environment? How did that happen? And we might think, well, of course, well, we know that, you know, the apostles, I mean, the apostle Paul, he went all over the place. And we have reports that um, um, of the gospel uh, going into India, that one of the apostles took the gospel into India, some of the apostles took the gospel into to Africa. And so, yeah, the, the, the apostles were really, really efficient at spreading the gospel into all these different regions. And that's not entirely accurate. Phenomenal growth of the gospel came not through the apostles. It came through lay people. It came through merchants. It came through business people. It came through guys like an Ethiopian eunuch who we'll study in, in a few, few weeks. It came through just regular folks. A tradesman gets on a cargo ship and, and sails out of Tyre and goes on up to Corinth. And he's been converted and he takes the gospel with him. And then a traveling businessman hears the gospel and believes, and he jumps on the Silk Road and travels on down to Asia and into what we call China. And he begins talking about the gospel. And the gospel takes root. It, here's the thing. The gospel, kingdom of God, the church grew, not primarily through the work of the apostles, but through the work of the lay people. Justo Gonzalez, in his very, very fine work on church history, said this. This is in your notes. He says, Most of the missionary work of the church in the first century was not carried out by the apostles, but rather by the countless and nameless Christians who, for different reasons, from persecution to business, traveled from place to place, taking the good news of the gospel with them. That's how the gospel spread. That's how the church grew. Did the, the apostles and the church leaders play a part? Absolutely. And I'll talk about that in just a second. But it was, I love this, nameless Christians. We don't know who they are. We don't study them in church history. I've often thought when we study church history, it'll be fun in, in, in glory and in, in eternity. That God's church history is probably way different than ours. Because all we can study is people who wrote. If they wrote something down, we can study them. These were the nameless Christians China had a huge Christian population. Very early on, had a huge... The Persian Christian church was so heavily persecuted, but we don't really study that. But it was large and growing and prosperous. Prosperous in the sense that it was, it was healthy and growing, not prosperous in the material sense because they were, they were persecuted so severely. So then that, that causes us to ask the question, why am I here? I don't mean that in some philosophical sense. Why are you here? Why are you here in the rim country? Why do you live in Payson? Why do you live in Pine? Why do you live in Strawberry? Why are you here? 
And you might say, well, I'm here because it was a good place to retire. I'm here because of a job. I'm here because my family moved here. I'm here to be close to my family. I'm here because it was a good place for recreation. I'm here because of a particular medical situation or what have you. I would suggest that perhaps we look at it from a heavenly perspective. Why are we here? And God has scattered you here through some environmental means so that you would gossip the gospel. That's not to say that you're not here to do a job or to be a good family, close to your family or that um, whatever. I'm here to say that God uses your job, your family, your retirement, your hobbies, what have you, as a means to scatter you to the place that he wants you to gossip the gospel. You are not here. I mean, you may be here to work. You may be here for a variety of different reasons, but I will tell you this. God has scattered you into this place so that you would gossip the gospel and talk about Jesus. Our homes, our hobbies, our passions, our neighborhoods, they are given to us as fields to plant the gospel. And I, I talk to some of you, and I see you in your, in your hobbies, and I see you in your passions, and I see you in your jobs, and you are reflecting the gospel there. I don't think that that means when you're on your job that you don't do your job well and all you do is talk about the gospel, but you do build relationships with people. You do come into contact with people. You come into contact with people I will never, ever know for a variety of reasons because God has called you to share the gospel there. In your cl- Build relationships and strengthen people, students, co-workers, colleagues, perhaps you are now suffering with a particular illness and you find yourself in doctor's offices. Do you think God has scattered you there for no purpose? That's your place to gossip the gospel. And, And I talk to some of you and we talk about how this person at work or that person at work or this hobby that I do and I've been able to talk to them about Christ. They came to me in a crisis or they asked me, what do I do? And I tell them that I, you know, what did I do this week? And I tell them I went to church and they ask and they think that's kind of weird or, or what have you. And you have opportunities to talk about the gospel. See, God scatters his people. He puts us all over the place. And he does it for a reason. So you are not here for no purpose. You did not move here. You don't have a summer home here. You don't um, live here part time. You don't live here full time. For no purpose. You are here for a reason. I want us to start taking a divine perspective on why we are where we are. I look back now, I'll just use myself as an example. I had some other examples, but I didn't ask your permission to share them, so I won't. I came up here, my wife and I, Simone and I, came up here um, to start a bike shop. That's just the means that God scattered us. That was the environmental trigger. that got us into the rim country to open a bike shop. I look back now, and I'm that's just how he got us here. That's not what we were doing. I mean, but even then, we had ministry in the bicycle community. We would go and we would spend weekends with people in at ski resorts racing bikes. We had opportunities to share the gospel. I hear about some of you are bleacher parents, right? You share the gospel while your kids are playing sports. You talk to other people. God put you here. He scattered you. He may not have scattered you through the fires of persecution, but Saratini is not restricted to the fire, to physical fire. It can be all sorts of environmental reasons. You, how many people you know came to Arizona for their health? 
I came to Arizona to get out of the cold. That's just the environmental trigger that got you here. This is where God wants you to be. God may scatter you somewhere else later on. I don't know. God is in the business of scattering his people. That's what he does. And he doesn't scatter us just simply for a job or for family or for hobbies or for whatever. He scattered us to gospel the gospel or to gossip the gospel. So, um, and one of the interesting things, as as I mentioned, one of the primary uh, we think that it is church leaders who are the primary means to grow the church. But that's not the way it was in the early church. And I don't know that it's the way it is now. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 12 tell us this. And he, that is Jesus, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. Christ gave these, I guess you can call them clergy, vocational ministries. For what purpose? To equip the saints for the work of ministry to the building up of the body of Christ. For how long? Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature manhood, to the measure and stature and fullness of Christ. God gave church leaders to equip the body so that they would build up the church. I pray that we would give ourselves to the apostles' teaching. They're communicated throughout this particular... There are other churches that do it, but in this church, there are opportunities for you to learn the apostles' teaching. On Wednesday night, Charlie's teaching through the book of Philippians. That's the apostles' teaching. Sunday morning, we're going through the book of Acts. We're looking at the early church. Tuesday's month, we're going through the book of Jeremiah. We, we go through the Bible. On Sunday mornings, it's a little more topical. So if you want a topical message or you want a more exegetical teaching, we've given ourselves to the apostles' teaching so that you might know Christ so that wherever you go, you do not need to be unequipped and unable to gossip the gospel. So our final point here then is in the area of joy. Our focus now shifts to the person of Philip. Those scattered about went preaching the word and Philip went down to a city in Samaria and put proclaim to them Christ. It's interesting now because the gospel advances, but the advance of the gospel is not just geographical, it is cultural as well. It crosses not only a geographical boundary, but it crosses a a cultural boundary. Philip is a Hellenistic Jew, and he goes to half-breed Samaritans. You should know a little bit about the Samaritans because we're going to be encountering them in the next couple of weeks. The Samaritan people were steeped in occult and magic. They were blending Jewish ideas with pagan ideas. In other words, they, um, um, so they blended pagan ideas with Jewish ideas and had some weird teachings. They were hated by the Jews because of their mixing of Jewish, their religious, mixing Jewish religion with pagan religion. The Jews hated them. They were also racially mixed, and so the Jews hated them. In fact, John 4, chapter 4, verse 9 says that, you know, they were hated by the Jews. Philip goes across both geographical and cultural boundaries, and what does he do? He preaches the word, proclaims to them the Christ. 
I want to talk a little bit about the religion in Samaria for just a moment. The religion in Samaria, um, of course, is broad. There's a lot of different things. But one of, the, one of the interesting aspects of Samaritan religion was that they were looking for what they called the Taheb, which is the restorer. It is one who would reestablish the temple in the city of Gerizim. He would restore sacrifices and he would convert the heathen. They held to Deuteronomy 18 as one of the great promises that there would arise one like Moses and he would restore all of the things of Moses. Of course, the temple, but their temple was in Gerizim, not in Jerusalem. They would reestablish the sacrifice, that this Tahib would uh, reestablish sacrifices and he would convert the heathen. And so what does Philip do? He goes into Samaria and he preaches and proclaims the Christ. He proclaims that in Christ, the kingdom of God has come. Christ is the Tahib. And it is verified by signs and wonders. Christ is the restorer. Christ is the one who fulfills all of those promises. He's not arguing with them necessarily about the details of their religion. He is just saying, Christ, whatever what you're looking for is fulfilled in Christ. And people might say, well, that's a bold claim. And then he backs it up with signs and wonders. I do want to look real quickly at the two broad categories of the signs and wonders. They saw the signs that he did. Unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice, coming out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were being healed. Here's what we see. Two broad categories. Authority over the supernatural and authority over the natural. Philip goes into Samaria and says the restorer has come. And I can prove it because he has authority over the, the supernatural realm and he has authority over the natural realm. There is no place in heaven on earth where Jesus is not of the authority. He has a powers over hell and he has powers over sickness. And so there is no realm where Jesus does not possess full authority. He is the one who is able to restore and he is the one who is able to deliver. And so a herald comes to Samaria and he preaches release from bondage. He preaches restoration through the liberating gospel. And that is verified by signs and wonders. And so the gospel is now broken out of the bounds of Jerusalem. And it is now in Samaria. Both cultural and geographical borders have been abolished in that sense. And Philip is now proclaiming good news. And backing it up with powerful signs. And I love the last phrase. So there was much joy in that city. That just makes perfect sense, does it not? The good news brought joy. The good news, Philip went about gossiping the gospel. He began talking about Jesus and people began to believe and they were listening to him and there was great joy. Why is there great joy? Because of the gospel. What is the gospel? Gospel is good news. And they heard good news that we no longer need to be bound by our sins, but we are liberated by the restorer who makes all things new. And there is great joy. The gospel, the same gospel that sparked the fires of persecution, that spread the seeds across geographic and cultural boundaries, is the same gospel that brings great joy. I pray today that we would remember the gospel. Are you feeling blue, feeling down, feeling struggling, feeling like eh, a little dis despondent? The gospel, remind yourself of the gospel. It brings joy. It's good news. It's good news because it says that Jesus Christ died for your sins according to the scriptures, that he has risen from the dead, he has conquered sin and death, and you can have new life in him. Paul looks back at his life as a persecutor and says, oh, I persecuted the church of God. And as horrible a person as I was, 
that is not held against me. Why? Because Christ died for my sins. Because of the gospel. So I'll conclude with these few things. First of all, let's note that persecution is serving God's purpose. God's purposes are not hindered by persecution. Second thing we should note is that God uses various means to scatter the seeds of the gospel. He uses various means to scatter the seeds of the gospel. He might use your job and move you to some other city. Don't think that he's just giving you a raise or a promotion or moving you to another job or moving you closer to your family. He may be doing that. But make no mistake, he's scattering you to gossip the gospel. He may keep you here. That's fine. But our job is to gossip the gospel. And we are to gossip the gospel. We are to talk about the gospel. We are to share the gospel. We are to be gospel proclaimers. We are to be gospelers. And gospelers are to be gospeling. And ultimately, understand this. While the word of Christ, the gospel, may bring persecution, it may bring rejection, it may bring looks of indignation, the gospel also brings great joy. So I pray that we would be bearers of good news and bearers of great joy. And I would like to offer an opportunity if you have not called upon the name of the Lord. You've never repented of your sins and been forgiven of your sins, declared declared right by God, not right by yourself, not right on your own terms, not right by your own estimation, but the God of the universe says, yeah, that person is right with me. That person is in a right relationship with me that only comes through the forgiveness that is found in Christ Jesus our Lord. He died for our sins. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And the blood of bulls and goats cannot forgive you of your sins. Only Christ, fully God, fully man. As fully God, he has the ability to pay for your sins. As fully man, he actually stood in your place. He stood in your place for you. And I would just implore you, call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. If so, I would love to speak with you at the church. I know most of you. In fact, I think I know all of you. <clears throat> there have been people who have sat in church for decades gone to church, sung in the choir, served faithfully, and one day they hear the gospel and they're going, I am not a Christian. I need to repent of my sins. It's not here to <clears throat> guilt you into it, but if the Holy Spirit's convicting you, today's the day of salvation. We would love to talk to you. So let's stand and let's pray and then we'll um, sing our final song, do a couple of announcements and be dismissed. Father, we're grateful that you have uh, scattered us to this place and you have scattered us into this little building, and you have scattered us into this little church called the Church on Randall Place. Probably in the uh, big picture, most people would never know of the Church on Randall Place, but the gospel spread by a bunch of nameless Christians who went about doing their thing and spreading the gospel. So I pray that while this church may be unknown to many people, Father God, we would just go about our business proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ and that your name would be honored, that we would love you and serve you all the days of our life. Thank you for your word. Amen.